Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. There was once a woman who was uh, very wealthy. She lived on a mansion on top of a hill, uh, surrounded by a wall with a guard at the gate. And uh, she had been a student of meditation for some time. And she was always talking about the things that she was learning uh, from her teacher. And one day she was going to her class one evening. And before she left, she pulled aside the guard to have a talk with him. And she said, you know, I've been hearing that all of the neighbors have been robbed recently. And so I want you to be very mindful and protect, protect the house carefully. And the guard said, I certainly will, ma'am. She went to her class. She had a lovely time. And when she came back, she saw to her horror that her house had been robbed. She says to the guy, I told you. I asked you to be mindful. You didn't do your job. You have failed me. And the guard says, but ma'am, I was mindful. I saw the robbers coming into the house and I noted robbers coming in, robbers coming in. And I saw them going out with your jewelry and I noted jewelry going out, jewelry going out. I was mindful. I heard this story from Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahm, Brahmavamsu, that's his full name. And at the time, I was uh, writing a piece for Tricycle on restlessness and worry. It was one of the hindrances. And when I heard this story, I thought it might be a good entry point into actually working with this particular hindrance and how to work with our attention appropriately. And so, you know, in Buddhism, there are five hindrances. You can think of them as five obstacles to meditation, primarily to meditation, to seated meditation, that really um, are seven, but two of them are paired up. The, they have kind of the, the physical and the mental side. And so they are desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. 
And we can think of these as the overarching categories, right? for the many states of mind that prevent us from really settling down. And of course, we can think, you know, there are, there are others, you know, there's boredom, you know, there's anger, there's distraction. But then when you think about it, you know, boredom can fit very nicely into either torpor or restlessness. Anger can go under ill will. Distraction is a form of restlessness. And so, you know, there are different ways in which these could be grouped. And I don't know specifically why these are the overarching categories, but you know, they, they work. And so I thought today we would look at restlessness and worry. One, because desire we've talked about at length. And also ill will, primarily in the form of, of anger. You know, what it is, how it arises, how to work with it. Sloth and torpor, I thought I could um, touch on because I, I won't give a long talk, but I thought I, I could touch on it during the Zazenkai, since it's a hindrance that appears uh, particularly during long periods of meditation. And so that leaves the fourth hindrance, restlessness and, and worry. Uh, because um, doubt, well, let me, let me, scratch that because let me let me just briefly um, summarize each of these so that there's context because at a certain point you know you start to see how they really interpenetrate you know they they could say they feed one another they inform one another and at the same time they have distinct flavor or texture and they have distinct antidotes some of the antidotes are shared and then there are some that are specific to each of these And so desire, as I said, you know, we, we've talked about it quite a bit, but it, it really is those, those three forms of desire, wanting what we, not wanting, sorry, not wanting what we have, illness and money and this partner, that job, not having enough money, sorry, uh, wanting what we don't have in any shape that that, um, appears, you know, health or beauty or, you know, bigger house. And having what we want, not being able to keep it because it doesn't last. And let me note here that um, when in, in the sutras, when desire is being referred to, it's really sensual desire right so so it's it's desire that dulls our senses that dulls the body and dulls the mind so it's not really referring to our basic needs like wanting food when you're hungry or shelter when you lack it and it's not even as we've we've talked about before it's not even desire itself but about the discontent that it engenders, you know, it's that longing, that craving that makes it hard to rest in our lives as they are.
You know, it's like that, that character, that movie, that Miyazaki movie, Spirited Away, that character No Face. I don't know if you saw that movie, but it's this kind of formless, very, very tall, formless being with a, with a white mask, slits for eyes. And he really feeds on greed. He feeds on desire itself, but particularly greed. And, and at a certain point, you know, the mouth just opens up, which is not where you would expect, and it just swallows people whole. And it just keeps getting larger and larger and more ravenous as it goes. And so sensual desire is like that, right? We want more and more and more. And the more we have, the duller we get, and so the hungrier we become because we need more of it to satisfy us. And so that's, that's the desire that, that becomes a hindrance. And the Buddha spoke of, um, he used a simile of the pot of water for each of these hindrances. And he said that sensual desire is like a pot of water in which you throw in paint red and yellow, blue, orange, and mixed in with all of those bright colors, those dazzling colors, the water is no longer clear. And the problem is that after a short while, those colors stop being dazzling, right? They lose that luster. They get all mixed up and they turn a dull brown, right? They, they turn gray and they make the water even darker, murkier. Ill will, the second hindrance, is the opposite of desire. You know, we, we, we think of it often as, as a form of hatred or hostility, you know, when we want somebody else to not be well. But we can also think of it more subtly as aversion. You know, as that, that pushing away of what we want to avoid. That, that dislike towards something, towards someone. And so cultivating ill will is choosing to put our attention where it doesn't help us, where it doesn't nourish us. And it's, and it's feeding that, that um, attraction, because it's a strange kind of attraction for, for everything that we're unhappy about and giving that fuel. I think of immediately, I think of a, of a child having a tantrum, right? and they're just getting angrier and angrier, angrier because they can't get what they want. It's like a pot of water that is uh, boiling. And the more fuel you add to it, the hotter it gets. And as the water bubbles, you can't see your reflection in it. You can't see yourself and you can't see others. And so you have to turn off the fire, right? You have to let the water cool down. You have to cut the fuel so that the water goes from boiling to simmering to standing. Or you catch it just as it's beginning to bubble. You cut it at its root. You do not give it fuel. 
because that is what we see after a little bit of study, a little bit of practice, that all of these hindrances need us to feed them. They're not inherent in our minds. They need something to keep them going. Remember that. This is really important. Sloth and torpor are really you know, boredom, disinterest, apathy, lethargy. So the physical side of it, sloth, is really that, that sleepiness in zazen, which when it has a physical cause, is letting you know your body needs rest. But very often, it's a kind of shutdown. It's, a, it's an emotional, a psychological shutdown. We don't want to feel a painful feeling. We don't want to see what is appearing before our minds. But we can't just turn on our phone during zazen. We can't just switch on the TV. And so instead we check out. And often it's it's unconscious. I remember many times at the monastery when I was monitor, Not many times, but there being being people that the moment they sat down for zazen, they'd be out. No matter the day, no matter the time. And so, and I remember at least one person going up to them and and saying, you know, are you aware that pretty much the moment you sit down, you're out? And they weren't. They were not aware. And that is also what becomes so challenging about the hindrances. You know, when we're wrapped up in desire, in, in lust of some kind, we, we can't see clearly. When we're fired up with our own anger, with our own mm, um, what's the word? Um, our righteousness. Same thing, we cannot see. And so what is tricky is first having needing to identify, oh, there's a hindrance, there's something happening. And this one, the Buddha said, is like water where, where you have a, a, a mass, a tangled mass of you know, plants on the surface. There's like moss or lichen. I I just flashed on an image, you know, when I was in college, my first year, I shared an apartment with, um, I think, three other women. And one of them, cleaning was not her forte. And one time I opened the refrigerator door and and there was a piece of food, I, I couldn't even tell what it was. It had been there so long, it practically grew legs and walked out of the fridge. I mean, it was like, you know, and I'm exaggerating, but not very much. And, you know, the thing with sloth and torpor is, you know, it, it, it needs to be fed in a way, but it's very subtle. It just kind of, the, the moss just, or, or you could say the, the mold just grows through our inaction, through our lack of zeal, our lack of interest, a lack of um, 
wakefulness. And then doubt, which is the last one, I wanted to, to save because I want to talk about that one uh, too. Because it can be so insidious and sometimes so, so big and, and so, and stop us in our tracks. And so I'm going to save that. But so then there's restlessness and worry. Or, or a translation, uh, some translations call it restlessness and remorse. And I even found a translation that calls these flurry and guilt feeling. I thought that was funny. Flurry is like, you know, your, your mind is in a flurry, kind of as like when it's snowing and you can't see. And guilt feeling, that's, that's the, the remorse part of it is, is that, that, that remorse, regret over things that we have done in the past. Worry is, is broader and it, it encompasses everything that we are preoccupied about, anxious about. And so it can be um, in the future as well. And it takes a number of forms, right? Anxiety, fear, guilt, regret, anticipation. And kukuka, which is the Pali, the Pali word for, for worry, means literally bad doneness. Bad doneness. So we worry about our practice, about getting it right, about what we have done or not done well and as we do our minds um, they get weaker in a sense they get kind of slack they lose their power and you know like like guilt remorse or, or worry using that overarching term is a little bit of a you know what i call a useless emotion but then I was thinking as, as I was sitting, that came up and, you know, it sounds a little harsh. It, it, it comes up. Sometimes we can't avoid it. We can't help it. It's, it's not so much that it's useless, but that it's, um, um, I don't know exactly what the word is for it. it it's, it's, a, it's an emotion that makes us feel like we're doing something about something that we need to do, something that we have done. So it seems to assuage itself, like guilt. So I've done something. I, I, I'm reliving in my mind a situation that I'm uneasy about, where I fell short in some way. And then I start feeling guilty about it, or I feel remorse. And I've spoken of this in the past, but I'm not really doing anything about the situation to remedy the situation. I certainly am not alleviating the other person's hurt. And I'm not making myself feel better. I'm actually making myself feel worse. But it gives me the sense that I'm doing something. So it's deceptive in that sense.
And so it makes a painful situation excruciating sometimes. We know, we know it's so hard to sit with our discomfort. And it's hard to sit with our hurt, with our shame, which if you remember in the Buddha's definition, shame is just that gap between what I did and what I know I could have done, what I would have liked to do as a person who is walking the path, who wants to be awake. And so it's shame in that sense, it's really just that gap. And it hurts, the sadness that comes from that. And it's hard to admit that we're not in control. Right? It's hard to admit that sometimes the best intentions are our most sincere effort does not have the result that we expected. And that's hard to accept. I mean, I find it hard. But I find it even harder to beat myself up, right? To be constantly worrying, constantly moving away from myself. Because together, restlessness and worry, they are that that physical and that mental agitation that keeps us from really being able to settle in our seats in our bodies, in our minds, right? Restlessness is that, is the, the physical aspect of it, is that, bo- that feeling of wanting to jump out of our skin, not being able to focus more than a few seconds at a time. We've all been there, we've all been there. I can't sit still is one of the phrases that I hear the most from people who don't sit or who have tried it a couple of times. I can't sit still. But really, restlessness is just the, the, the symptom. It's on the surface. It's not the reason we can't sit still. It's not the reason we're finding it hard to be with, our, with ourselves. You're sitting there, you're quietly following your breath, and something happens, and then suddenly you think, must defrost the fridge, like right now. I must write that letter. You haven't thought about the letter in a month, but this is the moment, this is the time. And the challenge when we sit alone and we sit at home, or even when we sit together on a screen like this, is, you know, you can chip. Just turn off your camera and get up. And if you need to, as we encourage everyone who joins us for sitting, when you need to, take a break, splash water in your face. We used to say at the monastery, have something to drink. You know, you do. You, 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 be, uh, you be smart. You, you be self-caring. And it's, it's, it's a matter of knowing when do I need to take care and when am I moving away from. And it is, and it's, you know, it's not always um, so obvious. I think of how many hours I spent 
you know, drawing up budgets and creating ad campaigns and developing new products on my cushion during Zazen and justified it in my mind because I had so much to do. I had so much work and it was, you know, quote unquote, good work. And so restlessness also has a sense of urgency, right? I have to do this. I have to move right now or I'll die. Some part of our brain knows probably we're not going to die. But it's that feeling. I just had somebody say that to me just a few days ago, in fact. And so, how do you hold it? How do you not jump? How do you not turn away? How do you not go and alphabetize your bookshelf? And the thing about this hindrance, because it's not true of the others. Not, not, it's not true of the others. Uh, except maybe doubt, that this hindrance is contagious because that anxious energy transmits. It's like when that, that turbulent water, it spills out of the pot and then it gets the stuff around it wet. It's like when an anxious person in a crowd starts to make the whole group anxious. And others may not even know what's happening. I've told this story, right, that there was one time I was, I was monitor and um, somebody fainted. And I felt the whole room and his fainting, it was very dramatic. He was sitting right by the wall and he fell and, and smashed his nose against the wall. And so it sounded awful. And then he was knocked out. He was knocked out unconscious. So I, I sprint across the room. You know, I, 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 I caught him basically as he was already on the, on the ground. You know, I, I, I put him to the side. I turned him up. And then I realized he was not breathing. I flipped out. I was like, are you kidding me? Somebody's going to die on me on the Zendo? It must have been seconds that he was out. But I, I probably lost like 10 years of my life in the moment that I took him to inhale again. And then he does this animal moan, like a wounded animal waking up. <laughs> and then another person faints because they were freaking out. And the, Zen, the other monitor from the back of the Zendo in their smoothest, calmest voice, everything has been taken care of. Don't worry, if you're feeling ill, put your head down. You know, the Shugan, who was in the teacher's seat, had to get up. Somebody else had to get up, get the other person. I mean, it was like, I was just praying that the, that the period would be over. I mean, and that was a very dramatic example, but it was that anxiety is just like, Phew! in minutes, it was throughout the whole room. And you could feel it. I mean, it was like the room was coiled tight against itself. And that's what it feels like, that restlessness. I must move now. It's different. Note that it's different from when we're in pain. 
Sometimes you feel the pain and sometimes it's a dull pain, sometimes it's a sharp pain, but this is restlessness. It's, it's a kind of physical anxiety. The, the counterpart of the worry, which is the mental anxiety. And this is, you know, this is like a, a, the mind is a prisoner, is being captured and is being led this way and that. Or another simile says it's like a gold brick that is uh, contaminated with lead. It's the purity and the brightness of the gold, which is your mind, gets clouded and gets heavy. Worry especially can, be, can get very heavy. Or is like that pot of water, and the water is being roiled by the wind. And so the wind is churning the water, and it creates waves, and so we can see a reflection. But then when you begin to ask yourself, what is roiling the water? What is the wind? What is the thought or thoughts that are robbing our rest? Because that's what restlessness is, right? You, it's a lack of rest, an inability to rest. You know, it's a, is it a, a kind of like FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. As you're sitting there quietly in your seat, on your seat, what else is happening that you're not doing, that you could be doing? Is it just like physical hunger that's creating that restlessness? Or is there something mm, underlying, some, some emotional component to it? Maybe there is shame. Maybe there is anxiety about something that is beyond our control. And that's really what we need to identify. And so how? How do we do that? The main antidote is with mindfulness, with attention. It's it's to break that self-fulfilling cycle of the hindrances. Because the more restless we are, the more worried we are, the more restless or worried we'll be. It's not, it's not rocket science. It feeds on itself. And so the more we stir the water, the faster it turns and the harder it is for it to settle. And so the first thing is to notice, oh, I'm the one stirring the water. And I don't have to. And then there's a shift that is subtle but profound. We have to pay attention to the water, not the wind. We have to pay attention to the mind itself instead of the thoughts that are fueling the worry. We have to pay attention to the pot that's holding the water, which is our body not the wind that's making the body fidgety. One of my fellow Dharma teachers said, if you go to the movies, 
What is the thing without which the film couldn't exist, but which does not in any way affect the story? And this is actually a question. So if somebody could answer, what is the thing without which the film could not exist? So it's necessary for the film, but it doesn't in any way affect the film itself. Yes, Nina. Light, the light of the projection? Mm, no. No. I'm thinking old movies. I'm thinking, I'm sorry, I'm thinking like, really old. no it's a it's a it's a it's a good guess but it, it's even more it's even closer to the film kate is it a camera mm, no uh hold on logan since casey raised her hand and this is the first time she does that so casey <laughs> first time first time caller um i was gonna say the viewer or the screen, I think you're going, were you going after the screen? Right. Yeah. Is that what you were going to say, Logan? I was going to say the viewer, so our mind was in the same place. Yeah. Right. The screen. And he equates, so my, my, my fellow teacher equates the screen with our Buddha nature. Right? because it is not affected by the story that is being lived on the screen. And it is um, all-encompassing as far as the, the, the movie is concerned, but it remains stable, steady. But with slight tweaking, we could also call it our body-mind. Right? Without our bodies, without our minds, where would the restlessness or the worry live, right? But our worry, but our, our bodies and our minds are also perfectly fine without restlessness or worry, right? It's not, they're, they're not necessary. These, these hindrances are not necessary for my existence. They are conditioned. They are the story that is being lived out on screen. Now, if I'm able to step back a little bit and focus on the screen itself, do you see how that might shift? And so, to work with restlessness and worry, first we have to notice that they're present. We notice I'm having a hard time settling down. We notice I'm worried about what might happen about this or that. And instead of trying to find a reason, right, we're not, we're not trying to, for, for our practice in this instance, we're not trying to find why these are arriving, why these are coming up. We're going straight for the screen that they're being projected on. We're going straight to look at the mind, to settle in the body. And if we're settling in the body, we use the breath. I mean, that is primarily 
the tool that we use, you know, to, to, to ground in, in, in our physicality. If we're dealing with the mind, we can also focus on the breath because it's, it's a way that we really, that we also can, can, can ground our thoughts. But how else could you do it? Any, any idea? So if you're, if you're trying to, to look at mind and not get lost in the story, how else could you do that? Yes, Casey. Well, first of all, I want to say that everything, your entire teaching today is so easy to understand and feels so applicable. So I'm so thankful for it. And during the meditation, I had almost a cartoon-like soundtrack going on behind me of like somebody chipping ice, a car alarm, helicopters, sirens. I live in Brooklyn. And, you know, I, I think the gift of the practice is sort of this ability to pull back, zoom out, and say, okay, like you kind of are presented with a choice, right? Like here are all these sounds and noises that could be driving me crazy, creating restlessness or distraction. And I kind of decided, well, one was I felt like letting them just sort of travel through me like a vessel. And then the other feeling that I had, which maybe is answering your last question was sort of like becoming one with the sounds. I kind of went into them. You know, I kind of went into the man that was like chipping the ice under my window for 15 minutes. And I just sort of felt myself sort of, you know, entering it, entering the sound somehow. Yes, yes, exactly, excellent. Okay, Nicholas? Um, I mean, not as profound as entering into the objects I'm experiencing, but I'm at the choice point and um, I feel like I'm really starting to notice now like right now in my life specifically in my relationship because I feel like relationships highlight a lot of things that might not be otherwise highlighted that I now feel like I have a choice like I have the choice to be like my eyes in the screen are not separate or I can like separate myself and see that there's a screen there and so like harboring ill will for example I don't like my in-laws. I had a realization the other day that that's a choice. And then I really like had like a conscious ability to like be like, okay, so like, am I gonna make the choice to not like them or not? Like, I don't have to anymore. I don't have to be like wrapped up and like swept away in it. So am I gonna keep being miserable about it or like harboring ill will? I decided I'm not ready to let go of it yet, but I had the, <laughs> I had the conscious conversation. Like I wasn't completely blinded anymore, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, that's honest. And you use a word that is really important. Let's underline that. It's a choice. It's a choice, exactly. That is, that is really key. Because when we're caught, it doesn't feel like a choice, right? It feels like we're just tangled. You know, if it's which one was the 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 mess, uh, sloth and torpor. That's the, the 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 mess of you know plants and moss and lichen. It it feels like I'm just tangled in this thing. Like I don't have a choice. 
but actually you do. That is the, the zooming out. That is the looking, oh, there's a pot, there's the water, there's the wind. Oh, I've been churning it. I'm the one blowing the wind on it. Oh, what happens if I just stop for a moment and let it settle? So it's like you can focus on the screen. There's the screen, which is kind of what Nicholas was, was alluding to, and it's the zooming out that Casey was saying. You can just open, essentially. You let the story play itself out, but you don't engage with it. This is also very hard to do, because immediately we want to fix it. We want to make it better. We want to change it if it feels bad. We certainly want to make amends if we hurt somebody else. That's important, of course. But first, 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 is like you be that pot. <laughs> you know, it's like you can use different images depending on what works. You can be that water and just settle. I've used that, that visualization a lot in my own practice. Just visualize myself as still water because it also I find it very calming but if you need something a little more solid you are that pot boom you're solid and you're holding all that water and you can hold all that wind you can hold the roiling waves you don't have to do anything you just be a pot you don't move you don't shift you don't change the water settles Udaka, the Pali for restlessness, means to shake. You just let it settle. I've told you um, about this yoga teacher I had in college, where, you know, she would have us hold a posture, an asana, for a minute, two minutes, five, ten, with some of them. And we would, you know, at a certain point start shaking. It's like every muscle in your body starts to shake. And then she would say very sweetly, she'd just say into this space, where does your body begin? Where does it end? Find out. And it was always her find out that got to me. It's like, don't assume that this is going to hurt. Don't assume that you can't do this. Don't assume you know where your body begins and where it ends. Because do you? And so that noticing, you know, we, we tend to not use the, the, these phrases that are used in, in Vipassana, in insight meditation, but you can. You, you definitely can. You know, when you notice restlessness arising, you can say, I am restless, or I'm noticing restlessness. Worry going in, worry going out, like the tides ebb and flow. Right? So much of our practice is just letting it be. Shantideva says, if you can do something about it, why worry? If you can't do anything about it, why worry? He said in slightly different words, but that was basically the, the, the gist of it. 
What is worry giving you? Really? And yes, it is hard. But no one said that liberation would be easy. But samsara is harder. It's much harder. Exponentially harder. And so we pay attention. We investigate. We be with. And then there's something else. We have to be infinitely patient and kind. Because it's not enough to pay attention. That's, that was Ajahn Brown's story. It's not enough just to be mindful. You also have to know what you're mindful of, and you have to be kind about what you're seeing. And you have to be patient because it takes time. And we don't always like that. Because, you know, after years of struggling with our minds, or maybe with our bad habits, our addictions, if we're lucky enough to encounter the Dharma, we begin to practice, maybe we find a teacher, and we think, you know, let's go. And then we get disappointed when we keep falling flat on our face. But anything worth doing takes time. And we're dealing with suffering, putting an end to all suffering. It's definitely going to take a little bit of time. And finally, there's joy. Oh my God, here she goes again with a joy, with a kindness. <laughs> because joy and contentment, you know, maybe I talk about it so much, well, one, because it's so important, but because I, not that I didn't have it because my life wasn't joyful, but because I did not allow myself to feel joy for a very long time. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that. I was afraid that I would lose it. I was afraid that it would be taken away. Because growing up in what was, you know, very formative years were very difficult. And so there didn't seem to be any room for joy. And things were very, very unsettling and unsettled. And so you could be, feel joy and it was taken away. Um, but it's, it's not like that. It actually can't be taken away. You know, now I know. And a mind that's joyful, a mind that's contented, is a mind that is peaceful and at ease. That's why, Songkai, you can be spending, you know, your half an hour or an hour, however long you're sitting, seemingly just doing nothing other than just releasing, being spacious, and then feel like, I want to be with people. I'm going to go down and watch the Super Bowl with them instead of watching it on my own. That is the connection, you see? A mind that is open, that is at ease, is whole. And then joy has room. And a mind that is turbulent, is, it's not impossible, but it's just a lot harder. You know, when we're unsettled, it's a lot harder to feel joyful. 
And so it's a mind that is able to rest. It's not seeking too much. It's not striving too much. It's not projecting. It's not distracting itself. Because it doesn't need to. It's happy to just be. Pain comes up. Okay, that's too bad. Oh, pain goes. Oh, that's good. Pleasure comes up. Oh, that's nice. Pleasure goes. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's easier. That, that hardness of, oh my God, this is so hard. It begins to get easier. But joy is a practice. And I know that I say that I say it often, but it, it's true. It's a practice. And we do well to take it as such, you know, to practice joy with all seriousness. And when it's hard to do it on our own, to do it in the company of others. Because all of these hindrances share the antidote of spiritual friendship. So when you're having trouble with any of these, one of the things you turn to for relief is spiritual friendship. Isn't that interesting? You surround yourself with noble friends to encourage you, to support you, to inspire you. And I know that I've been, and I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up, I know that I'm, you know, I, I speak relatively often uh, about, you know, Zoom and its limitations. I think partly because of, it worries me. Um, and there's also moments that I certainly have, and I hope you do too, where I almost forget, or may, I do forget, during Dharma Encounter, for example, the fact that we were on Zoom was irrelevant. I was with you. And when, especially when we, when we work together one-on-one, um, -on -one, I'm with you. And when I'm really in, you know, in, in a talk and trying to communicate something, I forget. I forget that we're on Zoom. And so, you know, we each have to do this work alone, countering the hindrances, but we can also be each other's antidote. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.